I might not be the best, most skilled artist in the room, but I know I can talk and I can get my ideas out there. And to me, that is a very valuable asset to hone. Welcome to Hardly Working, a podcast about how we can improve work, life, and everything in between. These are recordings from live conversations on Fishbowl, a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can join us live next time on the Fishbowl app. We have events every day. All right, let's get right into it. Welcome, 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 everyone. Thank you so much for joining. Today, we have a wonderful conversation slated with Rebecca Minkoff, but I just wanted to take a moment to say, once again, welcome. Today, we're going to be talking with Rebecca about how to set your own rules in business. I'm Sabrina Sanchez. I'm a writer and reporter for Morning Brew's career and entrepreneurship newsletter, Sidekick. If you haven't heard of it, please go subscribe. And of course, I have Rebecca with me today. Rebecca is a global fashion brand founder and chief creative officer of Rebecca Minkoff, The Brand. Uh, So hi, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us. We're delighted to discuss her book today, Fearless, and how she overcame limiting beliefs to take matters into her own hands. So hi, Rebecca. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. Hi, everybody. Yeah, I'm doing well. And we're both in New York. So we just talked about how it's cold and rainy. I have so much I want to talk to you about. Before we even do that, though, I do want to say there is a book giveaway at the end of this conversation. So please stick around for that. Those of you who joined today were entered into the book giveaway who RSVP'd. Um, and so Rebecca will be announcing that at the end. Yeah, you know, we have so much to talk about. There are so many themes and ideas in your book to discuss. And also, I just want to say for the audience, if you have questions throughout our conversation today, feel free to DM me directly. You can do that by clicking on my name or you can raise your hand and I'll bring you up on stage. But Rebecca, I'd like to start with some background first and foremost, on what inspired you to write your book, Fearless? What sparked the idea and why did you feel inspired to write your story down now? So I think back in 2019, I was sort of looking for ways, you know, I had the podcast and I had the Female Founder Collective, but ways to just continue to not just share my story, but I feel like whenever you're a founder, you have this hard-won knowledge that some people choose not to share. And, and, and I wanted to sort of say, hey, this is everything I learned. If it's helpful to you, here it is. And so rather than write an autobiographical book, if this is more of a business book with principles that work for business, personal life, but really to help anyone out there who is taking on their own career and, and how to shape it. So that was kind of the inspiration and then wrote it during the pandemic, which was an interesting time to write a book where every single rule that I have in the book, it's not chapters, it's rules, was really tested again, you know, 17 years after launching my company to to have to build it back up from the ashes again during the pandemic. I now have done it twice, built it once, rebuilt it again until felt like they were were sharing. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, And it's Definitely true. The pandemic tested all of us, I'm sure. And so in your book, you write a lot about times when you had to carve out your own path, take matters into your own hands and reject fear or social expectations. And I love that so much of that started with learning how to use a sewing machine. So can you talk a little bit about that and why it's such an important touch point for you? How did learning how to make your own clothes at such a young age influence your decisions? 
I think it influenced them at the time I was around eight and there was a couple things happening. You know, A, I wanted this dress. It was probably 20 bucks. My mom was like, no, I'll teach you how to sew, which as an eight-year-old, I have an 11 and an eight-year-old. They want instant gratification. And so that's not the answer they want to hear. But once I was able to make my own clothes and then have an idea and create it, it gave me a lot of confidence. And then growing up, you know, I was bullied a lot for being, you know, very thin, very gawky, very just all bones. And so I couldn't go just buy clothes. And so to be able to make the clothes or tailor my thrift store clothes to fit me also gave me a ton of confidence and allowed me to express myself in a way that, you know, what was that retail wasn't, I wasn't able to achieve. So that sewing machine, which I had until I was about 24, when it fell out of one of my many moving trucks in New York City and smashed to pieces was definitely something that I had a lot of just love and that ability to create. Oh no, I'm so sorry about your sewing machine. I'm over it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's definitely a legendary sewing machine, right? It was the beginning of Rebecca Minkoff. Um, and also, you know, it was sort of the start of all these different um, business networks that you have. You're also the founder of the Female Founder Collective and you also host the podcast Superwoman. Um, and so you know, you talked about booking convention in your book as well. And part of that was deciding to take a job in New York City when all your peers were going to college. And you were so candid in the book about the realities of the job. It was with a designer you didn't know anything about. You didn't really have a plan or accommodations. So where did you find the confidence to make that first decision? Where did that confidence come from? You know, I think looking back, when you're young, it's not necessarily a matter of having confidence. Sometimes you're just innocent and you have no idea what you just embarked upon. And I think for me, it was, I have to be in New York. That's my solid like battle cry. And I have to, I have to have a career in fashion. And so everything else aside didn't matter if it was a struggle or hard or difficult or, you know, living in my cousin's, you know, playrooms floor. So, you know, for me, it was that. Go to New York, have no money, and not eat you know, food and stay on your cousin's floor. And it's going to be this amount of time. Like, yeah, I would definitely second guess a lot of the decisions I made. But I think when you're young, you're just headstrong and you plow right into things, whether they're good ideas or not. And, and so this one, thank God, paid off. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And you know, it's interesting. I'm sure a lot of the entrepreneurs in this room listening right now can probably relate, right, to some of those setbacks or some of those struggles in the early days of trying to launch something that you believe in. And so, Rebecca, you mentioned that you took a leap of faith. Throughout your career, it seemed like every setback you had, you turned into an opportunity. You were finding opportunities in all these places. So, for instance, and here's a spoiler alert, there's a part in the book where you talk about that the bag that you made didn't make it to the movie set on time. And you had spent the last of your money on the prototype. You started to wear the bag and it took on a life of its own. How were you able to maintain that vision in a difficult situation? How did you see an open door where others saw a closed one? I think every challenging opportunity, you know, when, when it's happening to you can be either met with fight or flight. You know, you can say, I'm going to give up. This is too hard. You know, I want it to be easier. You can say, how do I make the most of the situation? What have I learned from it? And how do I come out of it? 
And so for me, having, you know, specially custom made this bag, I lied to the actress and said I was a bag designer and then had the bag made. FedEx delivered it two hours late. It was my last like 1600 bucks. I just said, cool, I'll just, I just bought my first designer bag and I'm going to wear, if I can swear, I'm going to wear the shit out of this bag. And enough women stopped me on the street that I was like, okay, there's something here. And rather than feel like a failure and and just sort of give up. I just, you know, reached out to my tiny network at the time within fashion and said, do you think I should sell this? Should I do something with this bag? And there was a resounding like, yes, it's awesome. And, you know, I had a friend who was a stylist and she's like, I know a store that should carry this bag. Let me see if they'll buy it. And, you know, so one thing led to another. But had I just said, cool, that was that was a good experiment. I'm going to give up now. I wouldn't be here today. That's so interesting how, you know, you sort of took batters into your own hands and decided to just see, you know, if there was traction. Can you tell me a little bit more about other experiences that you might have had where, you know, for, especially for the listeners that are in different stages of their career, where maybe something that you, an idea that you had didn't go exactly as planned, but you decided to just put it out there and see what the result would be. Yeah, I mean, I would say that the bag and its success really came out of this not success with apparel. We had launched apparel or I had launched apparel. I had, it was about four years old at the time and people liked it and it was doing okay. And I had some cool stores, but it really wasn't taking off in a way that you could pay the bills. And I loved it and I was passionate about it, but I couldn't get it past that. And so for, you know, to have to sit there and say, all right, this bag has legs, it's going to take off. But that also means we have to shut down our apparel line with something that was really hard to do, especially because that's what I had trained in. That's what I thought I would only be a, you know, apparel designer. And so that was a rough time. You know, I think People see a romanticized version of whatever their career path is. And, you know, I can just state for the record, just for myself and having interviewed over 300 founders at this point, like there are bumps in the road every single day. That's why I have a newsletter called You Can't Make This Shit Up because you're just like, wait, what? I couldn't have called this happening. And so I think, again, it's like, do you rise to the challenge? Do you take it as a learning opportunity or do you just kind of give up and fail? So there's been plenty. I could share stories all day with you all about the nightmares that have happened. Yeah, that's really interesting, um, especially the power of pivoting, having to make a different decision or take a different path than what you thought. What was that like for you, having to give up the you know apparel side of things and just go all in on bags? It was hard. I was like, who am I if I'm if I'm not this? And will I be taken seriously? And for those in fashion back in 2000, and it was hard. I was like, who am I if I'm if I'm not this? And will I be taken seriously? And for those in fashion back in 2000. And so I think that was hard, you know, to, to go, I guess I'm just going to be a bag designer. But then I think, you know, a couple of years in, my co-founder and I made a strategic decision like, hey, let's let's take every single ounce of profit, of cash, and add back the clothing. Because we understood that in order to 
to grow the business and to be able to be taken more seriously as a brand, we had to expand. So that was another risk we took, which, you know, it takes years to grow a clothing company and it's very costly. And so that was something we said, okay, we don't care. In order to solidify ourselves in the zeitgeist, you know, what's the backdrop to the woman wearing this bag? You have to. I love that. I love that you also talk about taking risks. It's interesting because in your book, you talk about how the people that you interned for or that you worked with in those early days often had different tastes than you, or maybe you were critical of the things that you thought looked good. Can you tell me a, a little bit about what it was like to maybe stray away from what, you know, what was traditional fashion at that time or, or maybe what people thought looked good? How, what did that feel like? You know, how did you sort of come to that decision to stand your ground and stick to your designs? I mean, if I'm being honest, sometimes you don't get to. I think that when you're growing a business, it's there's a balance between art and commerce. And, you know, the designers that want to be in their ivory tower and make literal art will have a slower time growing and achieving commercial success. And and so it's how do you have the cherry knowing it's going to be more expensive, going to sell as well. And then how do you sort of take your essence and your vision, communicate it in a way that there is more mass adoption and everyone has different needs and wants. But, you know, a woman in PR around that time was like, hey, do you want to have the type of success where you can go on a vacation or you can not worry about calling your bank and seeing if you have enough money to go out tonight like I used to have to do? I have designers that have to sell their own personal jewelry to to be able to afford to go out because they're so married to this singular vision of art that they won't leave it, but it's hard to make a living. And so I think people have to ask themselves, like, do you want to make a living and have your goods and out there's in a, in a wider way? And how do you remain and have integrity through that process, which is not easy? Or do you want to cling to your precious Picasso, right? And become famous when you're dead. <laughs> so I think everyone has to make make choices that are tough. And everyone, it's very personal for everybody. Yeah, that's really interesting. You know, you talk about how your art is obviously very personal to you. You learned how to make your own clothes. And so the stuff that you make are the things that you wear. And so one of the things that you talked about in your book is timing and how sometimes you have some misses and you also have some hits. One of those was what in the book is called the shirt. And you talk about how, you know, Jenna Elfman wore the shirt on The Tonight Show post 9-11. And after that, that was a catalyst to, you know, some of your success. And so how did you make that happen? You know, the production of that shirt and, and sort of like invest the resources that were needed to make it take off? Or, and were you worried at all that it was going to fail? So the shirt was before the bag. The shirt, you know, was something that I was making and wearing for myself and friends. This is, again, I had a five-piece apparel collection. I was working for a designer. And so I would do this stuff on the side. It was really Jenna asking for the shirt, me sending it to her before 9-11, her wearing it after 9-11 on Jay Leno. And again, I don't know how, uh, what the demo is here. I'm assuming everyone... <laughs> Was grew up with social media, but pre-social media, like being on TV and having Jay Leno ask Jenna and say like, oh my God, who's your shirt? She was clearly supporting New York and 9-11 and her saying my name on national television was like, 
Like you can't, I have yet to figure out outside of Oprah, like what does that today? And then it was in Us Weekly for like five weeks in a row. And then it was in Lucky Magazine. And again, there was, that was the communication channel that people saw fashion, said they had to have it. And so for me, there was one nascent website, which, which was probably like the worst <laughs> e-commerce experience ever because it was also new. And she put the shirt up and she'd give me orders. And I'm like, you got to prepay me. I don't have any money. And I'd bike down to Canal Street, get the shirt, make it and deliver it to her. So it was definitely, I was just a friend with her. I was like, listen, I'm a young designer. I don't have a lot of money. Like, if you want me to make you these shirts, great. But you got to pay me in advance. And so that's how we worked for about nine months. It's kind of all I did. That's such an interesting story because you were so honest and so candid about where you were at that time from a financial standpoint and just from a business standpoint. I'm curious about, you know, whether you can speak to that a little bit more. You talk a lot about communication in your book and the importance of that. So what exactly is your motto on communication? How does that influence the business now? So I think whether you're using communication in business or personal, we have slowly adopted methods and vias to not communicate, whether it's looking at our phone in the presence of people or looking down all the time, not looking up, not looking people in the eye, not listening. And I think that it takes a lot of practice and patience to sort of undo what social media and addiction to our phones has done. But I feel like true communication is the putting out of a concept that person on the other side duplicates it and there's a there's a back and forth and one thing that really really helped me is just because you disagree with someone doesn't mean you have to fight about it all you have to say is i heard you got it and you do it in a way that they feel duplicated i'm telling you the amount of fights i don't get in because i'm like oh yeah totally got it is like a very simple tool but i think that People just want to be heard and they want to be duplicated. And it's when you're not listening or you're waiting to say something, you're waiting, waiting to say something to make them wrong, that that's when you get into trouble. So I think that in business, communication is imperative to survival. And especially as an artist, getting your communication across is imperative. And so, you know, the more you can hone that skill, the better. One thing that was really clear to me when I first moved to New York and I was enrolled at FIT for about a semester was I looked around and there were a hundred people in my class that were far more talented than me, but none of them could talk or communicate their idea to a pattern maker or stand up in front of the class and do a presentation. And I was like, I can do that. You know, I might not be the best, most skilled artist in the room, but I know I can talk and I can get my ideas out there. And to me, that that is a very valuable asset to hone, as especially in business. Definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I actually want to talk a little bit more about that. You know, it's interesting that you talk about direct and clear communication about your ideas and just, you know, being able to kind of like communicate that vision to others. Part of that was also feedback for you and being open to feedback as well, having communication go both ways. Talk about the importance of feedback in, you know, your career and and the progress that you've made. And, you know, was it ever challenging at certain times to hear maybe feedback you didn't like? It is always challenging to get feedback you don't like. <laughs> Let's just be honest. We are all human in this room. 
I think the difference is there's a tone that someone can have, and it's usually if you can pick up on it, when they're trying to help you with their feedback or they're just being an a-hole. I think the more you can go, oh, this person's trying to help me. Let me listen to this feedback because it's actually going to get me somewhere. Or, oh, this person just wants me to walk out of the room and think I'm a failure. And being able to see the difference. And honestly, I, I think, you know, to anyone listening, the next time you're in that situation, rather than take it personally, like, oh, it's an opportunity for me to see if this person hates me or they want to help me. And I think that when you can benefit from feedback, even if it's not something you want to hear, you're only going to be better for it. And none of us are perfect. We don't have this all figured out. So sometimes feedback is great. You know, I had my CEO, you know, sit me down. He was like, you're too worried about trying to save every single person that works here. He's like, it's like you have PTSD of like losing an employee. God forbid it doesn't work out. And I was like, you're right. I do. And then I start acting desperate because I want to hold on to the people that I love and that are great, which is a great thing. But then you get too desperate and the person's like, oh, I'm going to take advantage of this shit. So I think it's like, you know, that was helpful feedback for me to be like, cool. You know, if someone doesn't want to stay, we can do everything we can to keep them and they still might leave. And so I think that, again, you know, really begin that skill exploration. Are they trying to help me? Are they trying to hurt me? And then what is, what is, what can I gain from this that makes me better? Because we can always improve. We can always, and I think, you know, looking at it through that lens makes it easier. Yeah, that's really interesting. And let's talk about your CEO because your CEO is your brother, right? He was, uh, we got acquired, Rebecca Minkoff, the company got acquired in February. And so my brother decided he had some other life goals he wanted to pursue. And um, so now it's a different CEO, long, long story short. Okay. Yeah. But um, in your book, you talk about how your brother did help you co-found the business at the time. Yes. Am, am yes. I correct? Yes. Okay. Right. Because in the beginning, it was just you. And so there was a moment where you had to transition and let other people into, you know, Rebecca's world and Rebecca's mind. So what was making that transition like, you know, sort of on the reins of feedback? How did you feel about sharing the reins and and what have you learned about having to work with other people? When you have a co-founder, whether it's blood, not blood, you're going to need to constantly explore each other's needs and wants. And as the business grows and gets more complicated and gets more stressful, it's important to be really transparent about changes. I think one of our first big arguments, and it's it's literally a user experience, is I was a mom. I was like, I'm leaving at six. Bye. Prior to that, I worked 80 hour, 100 hour week, didn't care. And he was like, whoa, wait, you're going to leave at six? Why are you leaving? For him, his parenting experience was different. He was fine to get home at eight. And I was like, I'm not. And we would really butt heads with that, not because he didn't want to empower a woman. He just in his mind, it was like, we're growing this together and you're, you know, you're gone. And so we had to constantly sort of, we made this a yearly activity, like, how's it going? What can I do? What do you need? What do you want? And try our best to accommodate that. And I think the more you can be on the same page with that person, the better, because you can't read each other's minds and you don't always know what everyone is thinking. 
having a co-founder is great because you're not alone. And it can be difficult because when it gets stressful, who do you want to point the finger at? Not yourself, right? You want to point at the other person. And so I think it's managing something that I find to be more complicated than marriage, personally. But that would be my tip. And you can take those skills into relationships. My husband as well. What do you need? What do you want? How's it going? Let's check in. We don't assume anything. And so practice speaking your mind and getting things off your chest because also as a founder, like the worst thing you can do is bottle it up and get resentment, especially when it gets hard. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's interesting about, you know, your brand is that you also founded it as a female founder. And we're talking about, you know, self-advocacy, speaking with on your mind. And we have a question from someone in the audience about, um, do you have any advice as a, as a woman leader on how to stand your own when you have majority male leaders? How to stand your ground? That's a good question. So I had majority. So my brother was my partner and then we had investors. I guess all of them were male. I think two things. I grew up with brothers. So for me, I never felt intimidated by that energy. My mom, you know, the minute I came out and they were like, oh my God, it's a girl. I was like, oh, I'm going to raise her to be tough. So I wouldn't ever walk into a room worried about, oh, I'm the only woman. And I think that sometimes women can do that and it already changes the energy. Whereas if you walk into the room, you're like, and what? I'm a woman. Yes. And celebrate that. There's a confidence that I feel is felt. Maybe no one really knows what's going on, but already you've set the stage. And I think that, again, now with my new owners, mostly men, I definitely feel like sometimes we have to educate a bit more on certain things that, again, might not be realized because it's not, they didn't birth the baby, they didn't breastfeed the baby. They didn't take care of the sick kid in the middle of the night. You know, like I'm not, I'm not trying to generalize all men, but sometimes it's like, hey, this is how this could be better for us. And here's what I would like to suggest to change it. And I will say that none of this is, you're going to have to stick your neck out, I guess is what I'm trying to say. You know, I think that, yes, it would be nice to have everything be perfect and equal and I believe, you know, lots of people are working towards that, but true change takes place when you stick your neck out for yourself and for another. And if we look across history at the big seismic changes that have changed equality, voting, women getting to use credit cards, you know, like just basic human rights, someone has had to say, that's it, I'm taking a stand and I'm going to be stubborn and I'm going to stick my neck out. And that's scary. But I think when you do that, you not only change the course for yourself, others. And so I encourage women, stick your neck out. It's uncomfortable. You know, sometimes, you know, if you listen to Bozema St. John, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes, you know, she was at Uber. She's like, I was, you know, banging on the glass ceiling and yelling from the rafters and it still didn't change the culture and the methodology of thinking. So she's like, I'm out. And that's also okay. It's okay to say, I did my best and you all are stubborn and you're not changing and peace. So I don't look at that as failure ever. I look at that as like, I'm so valuable. I'm going to go be valuable somewhere else. 
Yeah, that's so interesting, um, especially, you know, as women, sometimes there's that self-doubt. And I know that it can be really challenging to get, you know, others to understand some of the things that women go through. And so, you know, I also wanted, this is a little related, but you also talk at some point in your book about imposter syndrome. And, you know, you mentioned earlier about how sometimes, you know, you, you felt like you didn't necessarily have the same artistic skill as some of your peers, but you did have strong communication skills. I was surprised that you would feel that after so much success. How do you fight that imposter syndrome? And how does like being aware of that help you make decisions today? So I think that it definitely happens. Sometimes you'll be invited to something and be in a room and be like, how did I, how did I get here? Why do I get to be here? And then I just go, oh, wait, let me just remind myself of everything I did to be here and everything I, all the hard, hard work and my team's work. And, you know, I think it's in that moment where you're feeling the lousiest that you just have to go, let me find something solid to gra- grab onto. I'm not saying it works. You know, I was at an event a couple of weeks ago and everyone was just being their snobby fashion selves. And I was like, oh, I hate rooms like this where you feel like an imposter and you shouldn't be there. And then you're like, cool, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to go somewhere where I'm welcome. So I think it's, you know, solidify what you're awesome at and have that in your back pocket when you're in those places. Because if you're there, there's a reason. Yeah, that's that's really interesting advice. And, you know, I actually wanted to talk about breaking into fashion because, you know, it's it's interesting that you say sometimes you feel like you shouldn't be there. And, you know, for those in this room that maybe are interested in fashion, I'd love if you could speak to how to break in and what skills are transferable. You know, you mentioned just be awesome at something. So can you just speak a little bit more to that? When you say break in, you mean into into an industry? Into fashion, you know, just basically trying to make a name for yourself in, a, in an industry that we know tends to be a little bit closed off. Yeah, I mean, it's much more open today than it's ever been. The good thing about social media is it has really democratized that. Influencers have done that as well. I think that, you know, I say to people, your first job is not your dream job. Your first job is your foot in the door. It's proving that you're going to work your ass off. It's proving that... You know, the answer is always yes when it comes to taking on new responsibility, new challenges and opportunities. And nothing is beneath you or nothing is above you. And I think when you do that, again, maybe you're not working at the sexiest place, but I guarantee you if you're smart about how you approach your work ethic, you know, the next jump you make and why you made that jump was it just for more money. Or did you maybe take a pay cut at a smaller company because you wanted to see what I was like and have that experience? And how do you sort of, you know, look at your career like a chessboard? What are those moves you're going to make? Some of them, again, it's all about the money and the title. It's the experience you're going to get and how that's going to shape you for your next role. And I think that's the easiest way. And, And if you're in the industry or you're not in the industry and you're older and you're like, oh man, I really want to go into fashion, but man, I'm in my mid thirties and how do I do that? You might take some steps backwards, you know, but we had a girl who started out as an intern, then a receptionist, then a PR assistant. Now she's like head of operations at Female Founder Collective. So you never know what what your path is going to be, but 
you have to work hard. You have to focus and you have to sort of lay out the chessboard and and figure out those moves you want to make in order to sort of climb that ladder. Yeah, definitely. I want to actually talk about sticking with the passion for a sec. There was a point in your book in rule number five, point of view is everything. You talk about how at some point you found yourself in a lot of debt and you talk about logic versus passion, about how logically it didn't necessarily make sense for you to continue living the way that you were living, but you kept going because you were following your passion and this is something you really, really wanted from your career. How were you able to stay confident about your business when times got really hard and make that conscious decision of like, this is what I want and I'm just going to continue to work towards this? You won't stay confident about your business. You will have the biggest doubts in the world. You know, when stores are canceling their orders or, you know, if we take the pandemic, for example, on March 13th, we went all remote. On March 16th, 70% of my business evaporated. Then I had to go fire half my Then I had to give everyone a pay cut, including, you know, my brother and myself taking the biggest pay cuts. Then we were like, uh, how are we going to eat? The easy thing at that moment would have been like, oh, this is good cover. Let's just go out of business. You know, could have been pull the plug. We'll start, we'll start over later. It'll be fine. You know, the harder thing was to be like, no, we're going to fight every single day to rebuild this business and make this the company that we're proud of. And that was so much work. And so you're not necessarily confident in that moment. But I think, again, when you start out, whether it's in fashion or in any career, you have to love it so much and get so much joy from the act of doing whatever it is that you're willing to go through those moments. If you're doing it because you want to be rich, you want to be famous, you want to have a lot of followers or a lot of likes, like wrong answer. Because it can be so hard and awful sometimes that you're just like, oh my God, it'd be so much easier to give up. But I love this so much that I can't think of anything else I'd rather do. And I think if you don't feel that way, it gets really hard. And then you do want to give up and then you do want to do this whole quiet quitting BS and you just want to go into apathy. And it's like, why spend eight hours of your day in apathy every day or 10 or 12? At least love what you do as the parent. You just have to go to the office. You might as well fucking love it. I'm sorry, I'm swearing a lot. It's totally fine. Um, no, I mean, I, I really appreciate you being so candid and definitely wanted to talk about that, about, you know, weathering tough times. We actually have an audience question about how does fashion weather recession time, you know, from your experience? And how do you see the industry evolving? So fashion is definitely cyclical. You know, it goes from excess to recession. And I think that the ones that stick around and stand out are the ones that get really focused and really smart, especially in a recession. You know, our first recession in 2008, 2009, we lowered our prices. We said, we're meeting the customer where she now is. And we ended up growing. You know, as this recession is looming upon us or it's already here, you know, we're really trying to message the customer like, we give you so much value for the money. We are making a bag that is made in the same factories. No one gets scared, but in the same factories that you think the bags that you're buying that are 20 times more are made in Italy or France or whatever, like we're in those places and it's beautiful, handcrafted and and here's this value, but you can go out and pay rent. You don't have to save up for five years to get the bag or go into credit card debt. So I think that you have to adapt and you have to evolve. 
again, I don't want to harp on the pandemic too much, but we had no creative crew, no photo shoots, no models. And I was like, cool, I guess I'm the entertainment and you're going to watch me, you know, figure out and navigate a company through this. That takes a certain amount of time to sort of say, okay, as a company, this is what we're going to do. And then, all right, people are getting back to normal showcasing of fashion. Let's go back into that. So I think you have to be nimble and flexible. And I think the future of fashion heavily rests on its ability from a supply chain perspective to just be more climate friendly. We're partnering with a company called Route where every customer can make their purchase climate neutral or climate positive. And, you know, we do have some sustainable offerings. And so I think the real hard part right now is how do you get your supply chain to adapt? How do you get the people that make the plastic bags that your handbags go in or the hangers or or whatever it is? How does everyone just say, okay, let's just bare bones make something that isn't going to sit around in a landfill. And it's easier said than done. And, you know, companies that build themselves from the ground up have a far easier time of achieving that. And then ones, you know, that have been around for a longer time and have to shift their supply chain, it just takes longer, but it needs to happen faster. Yeah, that's some really good advice. We're still seeing supply chain issues. And, you know, there's talks of another pending recession yet to be seen. So we will see how that cookie crumbles. But we do have another audience question. Do you have any tips for entrepreneurs in this current market? Exactly what we're talking about now. You know, are there other things that entrepreneurs should be more cognizant of or just keep in mind in order to, you know, help their business through these difficult times? Yeah, I think that now is not the time to, it's the time to shrink back and have less waste in some areas, but it's not the time to pull back on advertising, marketing, social PR. Actually, now is the time to be out there because so many companies are pulling back and there are creative ways to do this stuff without having to like break the bank. You should cut out extravagant things like, do you have to travel? Do you have to do the $20,000 photo shoot? Can you do it on your phone? Can you do things for barter? And just be really smart about every expense and then really get specific on your messaging to your customer. You know, I think if you can hold on to your existing customer base and get them to keep supporting you, you know, that's a very valuable thing versus let me try and get some new customers. I mean, you always do need them in the pipeline. But I think if you can tighten your relationship with your consumer and your customer, now's the time to do it and be transparent. We were, we sent thank you notes, every single person who purchased in 2020. I sent 5,000, I think, copies of my book to my top customers. Thank you for supporting me during this time. You didn't have anywhere to go. You definitely didn't need a bag to go anywhere and you still bought. Thank you so much. And so I think as a founder, talking to your customer and community that can go an incredibly long way and create a lot of loyalty. Yeah, that's so interesting um, because you also talked about social influence and basically posting about how you navigated that um, and, you know, getting engagement from your followers, you know, to see the Rebecca Minkoff journey through those difficult times. How has that influenced your strategy now with the brand? We just turned back on our influencer partnerships. We tried to just solely pursue organic for a long time, especially coming out of the pandemic. And when we had the budget, you know, we said, okay, here's our plan. Here's the, uh, we're calling it, you know, army, but the R and the M are capitalized, hashtag army. 
And so we really have three phases to the influences we're using. There's awareness, there's conversion, and then we really want to make sure at the end there is a connection and loyalty to the brand itself. So that's what we've been doing the last quarter. We went after very specific girls for very specific reasons, and some of them are performing and some of them are outperforming. And so I think having gone back into actually paying and doing these partnerships, it is very valuable. And and I don't think it's going away. There was like a doom and gloom, like social media is dying. And I think it's, you know, things are going to level out, but it's still a, for fashion, a very powerful way to communicate. Yeah, that's a really interesting approach, you know, rocky times, but it's good to get creative. I just wanted to kind of stay on this note a little bit about getting your business through hard times, because I think that's so top of mind right now. We're seeing that there are a lot of layoffs in tech. And one of the questions that we have is, what opportunities exist for those in fashion with tech backgrounds? Oh my God, so much. Engineers, product designers, people who are fluent and knowledgeable in Web3, who can teach fashion companies, you know, how to have a Web3 strategy. You know, the most sought after role within fashion right now is an e-commerce manager or director. And so I think that definitely fashion needs tech and e-commerce always needs technology people. So I think you won't have a hard time getting a job. Thank you so much. So we have Kylie up on stage. Kylie has a question. Kylie, if you can kindly unmute yourself and feel free to ask away. Thanks so much for for bringing me on. And uh, Rebecca, I love your brand. I've worn your purses for years. So this is really cool to be able to ask you a question. I work in recruiting. And what you s- just recently said about like pulling a lot of companies pulling back their like marketing budget, like they shouldn't be pulling back their marketing and advertising budgets. I think it's really interesting because what I'm finding is that a lot of companies are just really tight with the purse strings right now. How is like a vendor, do you think you can communicate value to clients right now in like kind of a, a scary market where I'm, I'm finding my clients are just very, very afraid to invest in resources? Can you speak to that at all? You know, I don't know that it's, let's do the same thing that like, I'm not sitting here saying, oh, still advertise, do marketing and PR and spend what you've been spending and use the same exact channel that you use. You know, if your lane is TV or magazines and that's very costly, what about a catalog? What about a postcard campaign? You know, is it an influencer? Is it an experiential event that gets a lot of social shares? So I think you really need to be creative and maybe again, you're not spending in that same arena, but you have to still be in front of the customer. You have to still talk to her and you have to still surprise and delight her. And now is the opportunity when, like you said, vendors are pulling back. No, no, we're here and we're going to be in your face. And, and there's, I, I think there can be creative ways to do it if you have that talent in your team. So helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you for the question, Kylie. Yeah. You know, I wanted to riff off of that too, Rebecca, because I think Kylie brings up a really good point about, you know, there's some hesitation and there's sort of like a pause on on certain things and certain metrics. How did you adjust with the way that you measured success during, you know, those those difficult times during the pandemic and even now? So I would say in the beginning, success to me was, you know, did I sell the two shirts that I, you know, brought on consignment to the store. Then success was, oh my God, I don't have to call Chase Bank and check my account to see if I could eat out. 
And I don't have to be like sweating when everyone's like, let's just split the bill because I don't have that kind of money. You know, then success was like, oh my God, I can like go away for my wedding and not have to work for the week. That's crazy. You know, and so I think as as the brand has grown, success has meant very different things at very different times in my life. You know, success to me is when I continuously meet girls that are like, I got my first bag when fill in blank. And so it changes and shifts as you grow. And it's success sometimes it's like, wow, I've been doing this for 18 years. But then my CEO is, you know, tells me stories because she was at Kate Spade in the heyday. And she's like, things don't get good till you're 20. You know, it took 20 years to build Kate Spade into the brand that took off overnight. It took Michael Kors something like 30 years. So when you look at the longevity, like that's a success in itself is that we could have gone out of business so many times and we were just like, nah, we're just going to keep going. It's going to suck. You know, we used to tell ourselves, it's just 18 more months of pain, just 18 more months. And those 18 months would end and you'd be like, is it so painful? Yeah. Oh yeah, it's so painful. Okay, another 18 months. And, and I think continue to just to grow and be there. And, and in my book, which all of you need to buy today, uh, at on Amazon or wherever you buy a book. Um, sometimes I say, you know, sometimes success is the fact that you just didn't go away and everyone else gave up. You know, you're the last man standing <laughs> and they're like, all right, all the other handbag designers in your price point went away. You're still here. We'll buy you. And so, you know, sometimes just being that stubborn can can make you successful. Yeah, that's so interesting. You know, that actually brings up the question How were you able to get to a place of continuous growth and improvement without becoming stuck? Or have you ever felt stuck? We were definitely stuck. We had a plateau a couple of years ago where I was like, what's going to be the next hit bag? How do we make the next hit bag? And my focus every day was, how do I recreate this? How do I get back to that point? It's like when you have a hit song, you're just like, now I got to have another hit and another one, another one. You can't manufacture a hit necessarily. Sometimes it's where culture is at. Sometimes it's, you know, someone wearing it the right place, right time. And so to chase that for so many years was like exhausting. It honestly took relying on my team and saying, I don't know, you know, what do you think? What what do you think would be good? And then trusting them and empowering them, you know, and, and my head designer to be like, what do you got? Because I'm out of ideas. You know, and then and the bag that, you know, he came up with is now our best selling bag. And did it happen overnight? No, it took years and it took us getting behind it and messaging it and talking about it. So I think patience and investing in your team and trusting your team and admitting when you when you don't when you don't know the answer as founders, you know, sometimes people can get in their head. They're supposed to know all the answers all the time. And sometimes you don't. And I think teams appreciate it when you're just like, I'm out of ideas. Please help me. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Asking for help. So we do have another audience member up on stage. Mariana. I hope I said your name right. Awesome. I'm from Southern California. I actually just bought your bag, first bag, last month. It's like a suede bag and I've gotten the most compliments on it. So yeah, I'm very new. And I'm a new fan, but my question was, when did you know you wanted to get into the fashion industry? Did you know, like, once you're a child or somebody inspired you as a teen, what kind of brought you into this industry? Um, I think it was my love and passion for design and sewing. 
I talk about it in the book, which you're all going to buy today, <laughs> womanal messaging. <laughs> you know, my mom really inspired that in me. And I was raised in a, in a home where anything I wanted, I had to earn or make. And so having to make my own clothes was just really fun and gave me a lot of confidence. So that's kind of where it started. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for the question. And Rebecca, I'm so jealous. I just have to say, I wish I had sewing skills. I've definitely, that was a pandemic hobby I tried to pick up, but I need to pick it back up. But yeah, so, you know, I tried to tell my daughter, I was like, I'm going to enroll you in sewing design classes. She's like, no, my teacher's right in front of me. And I was like, oh my God, I guess, I guess I, I guess that's true. <laughs> so <laughs> that'll be my next thing is teaching sewing lessons. Yeah. I mean, I think you've inspired me to pick up a sewing machine again. So, you know, one of the questions that we do have in DMs is also, did you ever have a moment where you felt like you made it? Or if that moment hasn't come, what is the goal that you're trying to work towards? You know, it's a series of times when you think you've made it. When I got accepted into the Council of Fashion Designers of America, I was like, oh my God, I made it. Someone snobby recognized me. Then when we opened our first store, it was on Green Street in Soho and, you know, in New York City, you're like, oh my God, I've made it. You know, so there's there's definitely these moments that are pinch me moments that you feel like I've made it. If, if I achieved anything and I hit this, it's worth it. And that's, it's not just one thing. And so I think that's what keeps it exciting is that moment could be around the corner for, you know, and then when you get it, man, if I could give anyone advice, like enjoy it, savor it, soak it up, celebrate it, because sometimes there's a big desert in between the next moment. <laughs> you need to sort of make sure that you really remember that time when it like felt good as fuel to, to hit that next one. Yeah, definitely. Got to celebrate the little wins and the big ones. So thank you so much again for your time today and for speaking with us all about how you sort of made your own rules. So, I mean, I really appreciate it. Really inspiring. I'm going to go look up some sewing videos. And um, yeah, thank you again for speaking to our entrepreneurs. That's all, folks. Thanks again for listening to Hardly Working. Join us live next time and talk directly to the speakers and who knows, end up here. Fishbowl is a social network where professionals of the same industry have anonymous career conversations. You can download Fishbowl on the App Store or Google Play. If you want to host a Fishbowl live event, get in touch at live at fishbowlapp.com. See you soon.